Good evening. You are tuned in to another episode of Writer's Block on CGSW 90.9 FM. Writer's Block airs on the third Wednesday of the month from 8 to 8.30 p.m. Broadcast out of the University of Calgary campus. We feature inspiring interviews, poetry and fiction readings, and fun literary segments. If you ever miss our show live, you can check us out at cgsw.com. This episode of Writer's Block features an interview between Jenny Kwong and Michelle Porter, as well as a short story and feature about Ernest Hemingway. Without further ado, let's get started. Coming up first is our interview with Michelle Porter. Keep that dial locked to 90.9 FM. Hi, my name is Jenny Kwong for Writer's Block on CJSW 90.9 FM in Cowie. Today I'm speaking with Michelle Porter about her new novel, A Grandmother Begins the Story. So welcome, Michelle. Hello, and thank you for having me. I guess, uh, first of all, uh, in your bio, you talk about a lineage of storytellers that have influenced you. Can you talk a bit about that? Oh, for sure. I am the uh, descendant of the very well-known in Manitoba Goulet Métis family. Uh, And many of them were um, musicians. So I always say that they told their stories in music. Um, And uh, my great-grandfather and grandmother were, in fact, in a a pretty well-known Métis band that traveled around the area, traveled around the prairies called the Red River Echo. And uh, so my connection to them, I don't play music, but I write about music. And I always say that I, I, I'm a musician as well, but I use words instead of notes. Tell me about what prompted you to pick up the pen yourself. Mm. I've always been, uh, I've always loved sitting at my mother's feet, listening to her stories. So it, it's really my mother's stories that, that brought me to this. I grew up in my mother's stories about um, our family culture, our heritage, and the family stories uh, about uh, my grandmother born in, in Manitoba, uh, in that, all that music and learning to play what she played. And then them uh, being part of the the dislocation that Métis people experienced at the time, the loss of land and dislocation and, you know, some of the discrimination. And they moved out to B.C. Uh, and my mother grew up there and all the stories of her growing up in the bush uh, and what she loved there and what she learned there. All those things have sort of buoyed me up throughout my life and, and, and being, uh, uh, become a part of me. And I wanted to put that down in a story, in words. And I started with my grandmother. <laughs> and so tell me how the writing of this book, uh, how did it unfold for you? This was a really fascinating book to write because it's weaving of five generations of women. Uh, the you know the oldest woman is uh, actually in the spirit world, so she's passed on. Uh, Mame, um, who married into a Métis family generations ago, and you know her daughter Jean-Pierre, um is struggling with alcoholism, and you know wants to kick that uh, that uh, addiction before she, she passes on. And then there's her daughter, Lucy, and her daughter, Allie, and then the, the youngest female character is Carter, who was adopted out um, and is trying to figure out 
who and and who she is and what being Métis means to her now. So it's that next generation of what it means to be Métis. And that other side of it, it are all the non-human characters in there. You know, the, 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 there's the story of um, generations of, of, of bison herd that focus on Dee, who herself was relocated from Texas to a bit of land in, um, you know, the, the, the southern Canadian prairies. And uh, so she experiences that dislocation as well and that, you know, the, the, the breaking of the, the lineage. And so the stories, the non-human stories and the human stories kind of mirror each other. And I kind of braid those stories all together to form a bigger story about intergenerational trauma that includes, you know, the, the human trauma, uh, the personal trauma, as well as the trauma that's been happening on the land that, um, you know, as a result of climate change, as a result of changing, uh, you know, the loss of prairie land and, uh, you know, the uh, the struggle of the bison to, to return to, to prairie. So it's, it's all that, um, it's all focusing on that in generations of trauma on land and people. And I guess you can see that intergenerational trauma between the relationship between Carter and Genevieve? Yes, uh, Carter and Genevieve are great characters because they kind of mirror each other. Um, now, now Genevieve um, has, has been very distant from her family because uh, she's, been, uh, she's uh, been ashamed of the alcoholism that she hadn't been able to, to quit. And just through... Um, the kinds of mothering that happens there, and then the kinds of mothering that that, that her daughters experienced. Uh, Carter w- was completely removed from her culture and from her people, and uh, you know meets her Métis birth mom Allie when she is uh, for the first time when she's eighteen, and is angry, uh, and doesn't know what to do with that anger. Doesn't know how to feel like she belongs. And she's also a mother herself, a young mother herself, and she's struggling to figure out how to parent her son, Tucker. And so there's the mirroring of the of the trauma, but also that hope that this new generation, uh, who's living in a time when uh, we can, they can reconnect with their culture, can reconnect with being Métis. This this time of this flourishment, this real flourishment of what it means to be Métis, uh, that that can help and support. Uh, a kind of healing uh, that 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 allows the, the next generation to uh, do better and and be prouder than the previous one. The story takes place in a wide expanse of uh, prairie and uh, the BC uh, mountain regions. And so, tell me the role that the the land plays in the story. Yeah, the land has a voice in the story, and a, a big part of the. Uh, the voice is is the grassland, actually, uh, in and around uh, southern Alberta. So Jean-Pierre lives in Calgary, and she takes a trip down to the Rebhead Center down by Milk River. And uh, the land under uh, all of that area is speaking at different times with the with the bison characters. Um, even some of the the land reaching down into into Texas uh, will speak. I I felt that the land had to have a voice, and I wanted the voice of the land and the non and the bison and the couple of dogs that have have voices as well. I wanted these voices to be equal to and uh, to the the human characters, and that their stories to be just woven in. Um, in sort of an all my relations fashion, where these are just part of the story of of living on the earth, uh, and the land um, really speaks about uh, both the land, the healing needed for the land, uh, the need for fires, the need for um, the suppression of of fires 
to to produce the kind of grass that the bison need, uh, and uh, but also that that just this connection, this all my relations connection uh, with the land as kin, can really be a healing force for for the land, for all uh, for all living things, and for 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 humans uh, as well. And what was it like to write the bison scenes? Did you get to see a lot of interaction between bison and the human world? I guess. Uh, in the book, there is uh, the, the the bison stories are told alongside, but in this in this first book, the bison and humans don't interact a whole lot. Or at least the main characters don't. That there are humans uh, that 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 are you know working on the at the facilities or the uh, or the lands where where the bison are uh, you know behind fences and being taken care of. But the main characters in this first book don't. I am currently writing the sequel to this one. Where uh, some of these main characters and and the bison actually their stories um, overlap and inter interconnect. In this book, there it, it's like that that beginning that that upswelling of the movement across the land uh, for both the humans and the bison that uh, that begins the story really. So and that that's part of part of uh, what's in the title there. What is your writing routine like? Does the season or weather affect how or what you write about? What is my writing routine like? Uh, that's a really great uh, question. Writing a book as braided as this one, there are four and five and six different voices that I've had to pull together. It's uh, it's a process of you know I get up very early in the morning uh, to write because that's when my mind is freshest, and then I'm working. I work on whichever story calls me. Uh, whichever voice calls me that day. So it could be Shanfiev, it could be one of the bison stories, um, it could be this, you know, this amazing action scene, or it could be this more poetic reflection on, uh, you know, the healing of the land that, that appears someplace else in the story. So I I work on the story in little bits uh, at a time, um, and a little bit crooked. I, I liken it to the Métis uh, crooked, traditional Métis crooked music, where you can add a beat, drop a phrase, and and improvise uh, quite a bit. So I, I pull the stories apart, and then I put them together, proceed a little bit more, then I pull them apart again, and then I braid them back together again. Uh, it's, it's really been quite a process. It's been uh, really thrilling. And one exciting thing is that the audiobook is coming out with a huge cast of um, Indigenous uh, actors and voice actors uh, reading a whole bunch of the different characters. And Mame is being read by Tantu Cardinal, for example. And what these beautiful uh, Métis and, and other uh, Indigenous backgrounds uh, bring to these characters, I'm just so thankful and so excited for people to hear as well as read uh, A Grandmother Begins the Story. Why was it important to include other writing formats such as phone or text as well as poetry? I wanted to write an, an emotional immediacy. So uh, to keep the the emotional story, I, I'm a very emotional writer. Some writers are very plot-driven. I'm very emotional, emotionally driven. So in different parts, I use different genres to move certain parts of the story along without too much weighty prose. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, different parts of the story are told in text conversations. That's one of the reasons. It, it allows me to drop a lot of that, that extra prose so the reader can understand what's going on fairly quickly without too much, without having to spend too much time with it. It's also that I... 
I, I have a because I I'm very much steeped in storytelling. My mother's stories, my my auntie's stories. I'm very oral, uh, you know, very based in oral storytelling. I like the sound. I like the way people talk, and um, uh, texts are very much talky. They're very much you can when you read them, you can kind of hear in a sense how people are speaking back and forth to each other, um, as well as in some of the poetic sections. Um, the poetic sections I wouldn't consider to be like an abstract poetry. They're 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 just more um, a movement uh, from uh, between one character and another, allowing their dialogue to flow again without too much weighty prose around it. So I think that it was a bit of me um, sculpting and paring out uh, uh, some of the extra prose that that I felt would dilute the emotion uh, of the story and the emotions that the characters were feeling. All right. I guess uh, that uh, it. So we're at the end of the interview. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to say before we wrap up? I maybe would just like to comment on you know the music of the story. Uh, that this is really uh, you know I, as I said I'm a I'm a uh, musician who who works with words, but this this book some of the structure of the book really came through uh, as a song where each voice becomes different notes different notes and different phrases in it to, to create a whole uh, a whole song uh, uh, you know to, to create a whole that's bigger than each story's character uh, but that they all need to come together to, to create thank you very much uh, Michelle Porter for your time today we've been talking about your new book uh, Grandmother Begins the Story thank you very much thank you That was our interview with Jenny Kwong and Michelle Porter. For those who just tuned in, you are listening to Writer's Block on CGSW 90.9 FM. Writer's Block airs on the third Wednesday of the month from 8 to 8.30 p.m. If you missed the beginning of this episode, you can tune in on cgsw.com. Coming up next, we have a fun segment about Ernest Hemingway, as well as one of his short stories. Stay tuned! This episode of Redger's Block would like to give a quick shout out to a local event taking place in Calgary on July 21st as well as July 22nd. The Canmore Opera House in Heritage Park is featuring performances of the new play Many Mothers, Seven Skies, hosted by Freehand Books. For more information, contact Freehand Books. ever looking to spice up your literary party and need a new idea or recipe, look no further. Because tonight we will be teaching the listeners about a cocktail with a very famous past. This cocktail is well known but seldom ordered and shares its name with a famous novel by Ernest Hemingway. The cocktail in question is called Death in the Afternoon. Death in the Afternoon is a cocktail crafted by the one and only Ernest Hemingway. The cocktail was first published in a cocktail book called So Read the Nose in 1985 and featured cocktails created by famous authors, including Irving Stone and Edgar Rice Burroughs. Death 
death in the afternoon is a simple but effective way to impress your partygoers, friends, or local amateur literary critics. Simply pour one ounce of absinthe into a champagne glass and add chilled champagne. Hemingway's specific instructions include that the reader drink three to five of these in an afternoon. Death in the Afternoon is a well-known drink because of the controversy surrounding one of its primary ingredients, absinthe. Absinthe is a famous literary drink, with fans of the drink including James Joyce, Lewis Carroll, Charles Baudelaire, Edgar Allan Poe, Lord Byron, Oscar Wilde, and many, many others. Absinthe was banned in many countries across Europe and in the United States due to its alleged psychoactive qualities. Many countries passively kept this ban for almost a century. Absinthe is recognized by its pistachio green color. It often combines with other ingredients to create a milky opalescence hue. In Hemingway's Death in the Afternoon, the liquor mixes with the champagne to create a milky green glow. Absence controversy includes a story from Oscar Wilde in which the writer reportedly felt a phantom sensation of tulips brushing against his legs after the closure of a bar. Whether or not this story is true remains uncertain to, to this day. Speaking of bars, up next is a story that reflects the literary fascination with the ambience of a nighttime place. Without further ado, here is Ernest Hemingway's A Clean, Well-Lighted Place. A Clean, Well-Lighted Place by Ernest Hemingway It was very late, and everyone had left the café except an old man who sat at the shadow the leaves of the tree made against the electric light. In the daytime, the street was dusty, but at night the dew settled the dust, and the old man liked to sit late because he was deaf, and now at night it was quiet, and he felt the difference. The two waiters inside the café knew that the old man was a little drunk, and while he was a good client, they knew that if he became too drunk, he would leave without paying, so they kept watch on him. Last week he tried to commit suicide, one waiter said. Why? He was in despair. What about? Nothing. How do you know it was nothing? He has plenty of money. They sat together at a table that was close against the wall near the door of the cafe and looked at the terrace where the tables were all empty except where the old man sat in the shadow of the leaves of the tree that moved slightly in the wind. A girl and a soldier went by in the street. The street light shone on the brass number on his collar. The girl wore no head covering and hurried beside him. The guard will pick him up, one waiter said. 
What does it matter if he gets what he's after? He'd better get off the street now. The guard will get him. They went by five minutes ago. The old man sat in the window and rapped on his saucer with his glass. The younger waiter went over to him. What do you want? The old man looked at him. Another brandy, he said. You'll be drunk, the waiter said. The old man looked at him. The waiter went away. He'll stay all night, he said to his colleague. I'm sleepy now. I never get to bed before three o'clock. He should have killed himself last week. The waiter took the brandy bottle and another saucer from the counter inside the cafe and marched out to the old man's table. He put down the saucer and poured the glass full of brandy. You should have killed yourself last week, he said to the deaf man. The old man motioned with his finger. A little more, he said. The waiter poured on into the glass so that the brandy slopped over and ran down the stem into the top saucer of the pile. Thank you, the old man said. The waiter took the bottle back inside the cafe. He sat down at the table with his colleague again. He's drunk now, he said. He's drunk every night. What did he want to kill himself for? How should I know? How did he do it? He hung himself with a rope. Who cut him down? His niece? Why did they do it? Fear for his soul. How much money has he got? He's got plenty. He must be 80 years old. Anyway, I should say he was 80. I wish he would go home. I never get to bed before 3 o'clock. What kind of hour is that to go to bed? He stays up because he likes it. He's lonely. I'm not lonely. I have a wife waiting in bed for me. He had a wife once, too. A wife would be no good to him now. You can't tell. He might be better with a wife. His niece looks after him. You said she cut him down? I know. I wouldn't want to be that old. An old man is a nasty thing. Not always. This old man is clean. He drinks without spilling. Even now, drunk, look at him. I don't want to look at him. I wish he would go home. He has no regard for those who must work. The old man looked from his glass across the square, then over at the waiters. Another brandy, he said, pointing to his glass. The waiter, who was in a hurry, came over. Finished, he said, speaking with that omission of syntax stupid people employ when talking to drunken people or foreigners. No more tonight. Close now. Another, said the old man. No. Finished. The waiter wiped the edge of the table with a towel and shook his head. The old man stood up, slowly counted the saucers, took a leather coin purse from his pocket and paid for the drinks, leaving half a peseta tip. The waiter watched him go down the street, a very old man walking unsteadily, but with dignity. "'Why didn't you let him stay and drink?' the unhurried waiter asked. They were putting up the shutters. "'It's not half past two. I want to go home to bed. What is an hour? More to me than to him. An hour is the same. You talk like an old man yourself. He can buy a bottle and drink at home.' It's not the same. No, it is not, agreed the waiter with a wife. But he did not wish to be unjust. He was only in a hurry. 
Are you... You have no fear of going home before your usual hour? Are you trying to insult me? No, hombre, only to make a joke. No, the waiter who was in a hurry said, rising from pulling down the metal shutters. I have confidence. I am all confidence. You have youth, confidence, and a job, the old waiter said. You have everything. And what do you lack? Everything but work. You have everything I have? No, I have never had confidence, and I am not young. Come on, stop talking nonsense and lock up. I am one of those who like to stay late at the cafe, the older waiter said. With all those who do not want to go home to bed, with all those who need a light for the night, I want to go home and into bed. We are of two different kinds, the older waiter said. He was now dressed to go home. It's not only a question of youth and confidence, although those things are very beautiful. Each night I am reluctant to close up because there may be someone who needs the cafe. Hombre, there are bodegas open all night long. No, you do not understand. This is a clean and pleasant cafe. It is well lighted. The light is very good, and also now there are shadows of the leaves. Good night, said the younger waiter. Good night, the other said. Turning off the electric light, he continued the conversation with himself. It was the light, of course, but it's necessary that the place be clean and pleasant. You do not want music. Certainly you do not want music, nor can you stand before a bar with dignity, although that's all that's provided for these hours. What did he fear? It was not a fear or a dread. It was a nothing that he knew too well. It was all a nothing, and a man was a nothing too. It was only that and light that was all that was needed, and a certain cleanliness and order. Some lived in it and never felt it, because he knew it was all nada, y pues nada, y nada pues nada. Ar nada who art in nada, nada be thy name, thy kingdom nada, thy will be nada, in nada as it is in nada. Give us this nada, our daily nada, and nada us our nada, as we nada our nadas, and nada us not into nada, but deliver us from nada. Pues nada. Hail nothing, full of nothing, nothing is with thee. He smiled and stood before a bar with a shining steam-pressure coffee machine. What's yours? asked the barman. Nada. Otro loco mas said the barman and turned away. A little cup, said the waiter. The barman poured it for him. The light is very bright and pleasant, but the bar is unpolished, the waiter said. The barman looked at him but did not answer. It was too late at night for conversation. You want another copita? the barman asked. No, thank you, said the waiter and went out. He disliked bars and bodegas. A clean, well-lighted café was a very different thing. Now, without thinking further, he would go home to his room. He would lie in the bed, and finally, with daylight, he would go to sleep. After all, he said to himself, it's probably only insomnia. Many must have it.
Without further ado, that will conclude this episode of Writer's Block. This episode featured an interview with Michelle Porter, as well as a segment about Ernest Hemingway and his famous drink, Death in the Afternoon. If you missed this entire episode, you can always check it out on cgsw.com. Thanks for tuning in, and make sure to tune in next month as well. Have a good night.